Are you looking for an online store that would have all your ketogenic products in one place? Then let me introduce you to OneStopKeto.com. Once you get there, you'll see personally selected products by me, and they do have the largest selection of keto-friendly products. There are no membership fees, and you'll get free shipping on all orders over $99. Use the coupon code KETOTALK for an additional special discount for listeners of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. They ship to the U.S. and Canada, and they have five-star amazing customer service. If you have any questions and looking for specific products, they are there for you. So head on over to OneStopKeto.com. Do you find it challenging to get organ meats into your healthy ketogenic lifestyle? Don't you wish you could get all the benefits of consuming these traditional superfoods chock full of nutrients without having to cook or eat them? Well, let me introduce you to the brand new grass-fed organ complex supplement from Paleo Valley, makers of the deliciously juicy grass-fed beef sticks. They use gently freeze-dried ingredients, including all grass-fed, grass-finished beef liver, heart, brain, and kidney to give you a flavorless, power-packed punch of nutrition you won't be able to replicate beyond eating all of these organ meats in your diet. Each bottle contains a 30-day supply of easy-to-swallow pills with the fillers or flow agents added. They're gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and non-GMO. Go to paleovalley.com slash LLVLC and use the coupon code LLVLC to get a generous 20% off your order. Try it today to get a 60-day, 100% money-back guarantee and see how you like the grass-fed organ complex for yourself. That's paleovalley.com slash LLVLC. Looking for high-quality supplements to complement your healthy, low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic lifestyle? Well, look no more as I've teamed up with ketogenic practitioner and my Keto Talk podcast co-host, Dr. Adam Nally, to create the Keto Living line of supplements. Go to ketoliving.com to see our first two items available for you, the Keto Essentials Multivitamin and the Berberine Plus Blood Sugar Control Formula. Dr. Nally himself hand-selected the key nutrients included in the Keto Essentials multivitamin, including vitamin D, methylated folate for those with the MTHFR gene mutation, vitamin B12, CoQ10, and so much more. And if you are concerned about elevated blood sugar and cholesterol levels, then check out our customized product called Berberine Plus, which combines the anti-inflammatory power of berberine with therapeutic levels of chromium and banaba leaf. And we're just getting started on the Keto Living brand of ketogenic-focused supplements in 2017, including the first-ever high-fat meal replacement powder to help you ditch those problematic protein powders coming soon. Go to ketoliving.com to get your hands on these exciting new supplements to enhance your ketogenic diet. Ketoliving.com. The information and opinions provided here are for educational purposes only and are not intended to provide individual medical advice. Material conversations and statements found herein are not intended as and does not substitute for a personalized doctor-patient relationship. You are listening to Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and The Doc. 
Featuring veteran health podcaster Jimmy Moore and Surprise Arizona family physician Dr. Adam Nally. They are here answering the most pressing questions about a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet. Visit our website, ketotalk.com. And now, it's time for Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Here's Jimmy and Adam. Hey, hey, guys, we're back here with episode 62 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Visit our website. It's ketotalk.com. And we're here each and every Thursday answering all of your curious questions because you guys have some really curious questions all about the ketogenic diet. And if you're unfamiliar with that, it's a low carb, moderate protein, high fat diet for the purposes of health. And I chat here each and every week. My name's Jimmy Moore. I chat here with Dr. Adam Nally, my good buddy, my pal. What's up, buddy? Hello, Jimmy, and hello, all you ketonians out there. I hope you're enjoying chewing the fat with us. Chewing the fat's what we do here. Of course, it actually is, in, yes. In recent weeks, we've been having egg gate because a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> we, we were bringing up chicken eggs and duck eggs and what's the protein content? What's the, you know, all this. And so last week, we thought we had answered this, but uh, the doc um, had a brain fart and <laughs> decided to do the macros. <laughs> But so people are they've been dying. They've been waiting since last Thursday, Doc. So what did you find out about the different proteins that are in chicken eggs versus duck eggs? Well, it's kind of cool there. You know, when you look at the protein content, you know, the 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 duck egg has about 18 percent protein where the chicken egg only has 13. Oh, wow. And the the contents vary dramatically um, in some of them, Uh, specifically your your insulin inducing proteins like your um, arginine and your um, leucine, those type of things are actually higher in the regular egg than they are in the duck egg. But because the fat content is higher and because of some of the shift in some of the proteins, and I could go through all the milligrams with every one of them, it'll bore the snot out of you. <laughs> well, a few of you, it wouldn't, but most of you, it would. It's not um, sea lion liver uh, protein, which is the most insulogenic. <laughs> no, it is not. They're, they're, they're very similar in nature in regards to the protein content because both of them are creating either a new duck or a new chicken. So right. it's, it's creating a, you know, a, 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 an embryo. Um, but what's interesting to note is that because of the higher fat and the higher protein, uh, as someone, uh, a listener pointed out to me earlier, it actually has more of a of an alkaline effect on yes. the gut than it does on than an egg does. So, for, uh, which is going to be beneficial in a number of different ways, and we don't have time to go into that either. But it, you know, for the most part, you you actually see uh, a, a significantly anywhere between fifty to hundred milligrams more of all of your branch chain amino acids are actually in that duck egg uh, than there are in the, in the regular chicken egg, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and and Francis uh, actually sent us. She's one of our listeners. Sent us this really long email that gave this whole dissertation about duck eggs versus chicken eggs and why duck eggs are far superior in alkaline producing. Uh, what was one of the the main things that that was in there? They have twice the nutritional value of a chicken egg and stay fresher longer. Uh, they're richer with more albumin. Um, which this says makes cakes and pastries fluffier and richer. We don't care about that aspect. Um, have more omega-3 fatty acids, which we talked about, and alkaline. So anyway, it's just, it's fascinating. Uh, so the preponderance of the protein, I'm just curious, uh, what is the kind of amino acid in each one? It, you said it's similar? 
They're they're very similar. Um, and, you know, and, uh, and you've got tryptophan, you know, the duck egg, tryptophan, th- uh, threonine, isoleucine, leucine, lysine, methionine, cysteine, phenylalanine, tyrosine, valine, arginine, histidine, alanine, aspartic acid, glutamic acid, glycine, proline, and serine. Bless you. Um, Yes, exactly. Um, there, there. Uh, you have identical amounts um, in uh, in the chicken egg, uh, except your your values for those are anywhere between fifty to one hundred grams more in the duck egg than they are in the chicken egg, and which is actually quite fascinating to see that there's a larger protein um, and specifically branched chain amino acid content, which uh, and it's that protein and um, component that actually does make the egg fluffier uh, in that regard with, with bakers and those that, those that do baking who love to use a duck egg there is a different uh, texture that comes from the duck egg I, I am told now I uh, when I eat my breakfast in the morning I have two chicken eggs and a duck egg and I just, and it's great and it, it works for me but what you're seeing is is a, a, a higher amount of fat omega-3 in the duck egg with a slightly larger amount milli- per milligram of your overall protein but they it, all three both eggs hit the main um, the main proteins necessary just yes. a little bit more yeah, and I love my 12 chickens. And I was just looking at some ducks, but I think you have to have some water. So I got to do your oh, whole aquaponics they, thing. Now, I will warn you, if yes. you if you get ducks, yes. ducks have this wonderfully innate ability to make a mud hole out of a teaspoon of water. So <laughs> be aware, they are messy. They may, and so if you, are chickens. If you're, oh, my even chickens more are really so. messy, man. They dig everywhere in dirt bath and yeah. Oh, my ducks make a ginormous that my I have seven ducks. I have 30 chickens. My seven ducks make more of a mess than my 30 chickens. It's it <laughs> is amazing. noisier too. Oh, they absolutely are. Yeah. <laughs> so egg gate 2017. Hopefully this <laughs> this case is closed now. Well, let's move on to another interesting headline uh, before we get into the questions today. This one was from The Telegraph. Going gray early increases your heart attack risk. And you might be going, wait a minute, uh, what does gray hair have to do with heart attack risk? So a new study, uh, scientists have discovered that hair whitening actually is an indication of an increased risk of damage to arteries supplying the heart with blood. Some of the biological mechanisms that drive coronary artery disease are also responsible for graying hair they believe they uh this includes uh, impaired dna repair oxidative stress inflammation hormonal changes and the halting of cell growth and the findings could pave the way to identify patients most at risk of heart disease yeah uh john your hair is gray you're going to have a heart attack. <laughs> does this sound preposterous or is it interesting to you not at all. It's actually it actually it makes it makes very much metabolic sense. You know, you you as you see a person with increased oxidative stress, you see a person that has an increase in overall uh, inflammation, which is what we see in in you know in, in just about everybody over the age of forty. Yep. I woke up when I turned forty and went oh, and then I rolled over and went, <laughs> "Where's my father?" It sounds just like my father, and then I realized I had the same back pain that he probably did. And but but as we age, we see a we see a change in the ability to handle inflammation. Um, as that aging increases and as that, uh, that inflammation increases, it changes the way the body produces hair and you see a whitening that occurs, which actually makes total sense. Now, the interesting thing about the article is just because you got white hair doesn't mean you have atherosclerosis. And right. so that's the, that's the part they have to further elucidate, which will require, I'm sure, a lot more study. But it, it, the two correlate very well. And so 
um, you know, as, as I, as I look back over those people that I, that I know who have had early gray and then think how many of them have actually had vascular changes or early heart, heart disease, the numbers kind of are interesting and, uh, you, it's something you want to look at. Interesting. So what was the noise that your wife Tiffany made when uh, you turned 40? <laughs> if you went, uh, what'd she go? Ugh. She goes, you sound like your father. So it's, a <laughs> oh, she kept it real. That's how no, like she totally Christine. kept it real. Yeah, she totally <laughs> kept it real. That's what our wives do. They keep us, keep us humble. <laughs> yes. You realize that when you hear this noise and you, you think your father's nearby and you go, wait a minute, that wasn't my hey, father. That, that came out of me. my mouth. That's yeah, funny. It's, it's, well, I saw another interesting uh, headline. Second opinion from doctor nets a different diagnosis 88% of the time, according to a new study. When it comes to treating a serious illness, two brains are better than one. And a new study found that nine in 10 people who decided to go for an, a second opinion after seeing a doctor are likely to leave with a refined or a completely new diagnosis from what they were first told. They looked at 286 patients with researchers at the Mayo Clinic, uh, and they decided uh, to consult a second opinion, and 88%. That, that seemed really high. When I when I polled this to Christine just on a whim just to see what she said, oh, I don't know, 15%, I said, higher She's 30, higher, much higher, 60, higher. And she couldn't believe it was almost nine out of 10. Got a different one. Did, did this surprise you as a medical professional? I took offense at this. Um, <laughs> I totally took offense at this article. So I actually went and found the original article. There is some significant spin on this particular article. Okay. Um, and so let me explain. Because when I read this, I went, there is no way, no way. That, that, that that happens. 88% um, of the time I'm wrong. Because I'm a family doc. You know, and I see patients, I'm going, there's no way that 88% of the time I'm wrong. Now, the study doesn't. It's not talking about second opinions. Yes. The, the study, the, the original study is looking for, looking at what was the diagnosis made on a referral, not a second opinion, a okay. referral. And, and in the physician's mind, that's dramatically different. You know, when I make a diagnosis and I'm treating it myself, I'm pretty sure I've got the correct diagnosis. But if, but if I have any question or I don't know how to treat it or it's not in my, in my purview of, of specialty, then I'm going to make a referral with my best assessment as to what that is. Now, if you look closely, um, they, these are actually referral based. So the doc, and it was either a PA, a nurse practitioner, or a, a physician, a primary care doctor, um, made a referral to a specialist. That Those those three primary do, primary uh, practitioners, you would say, make these, this referral with a preliminary or a working diagnosis. Now, 60% of the time, the, the, the diagnosis was honed in to be more more. Um, more specific. 15% mm -hmm. of the time, a different diagnosis was made. But again, that's the whole reason for making a referral because the primary doc says, something's wrong. I think this is what it is, but I'm going to make the referral so the specialist can help ah, us elucidate that. Yes. The, the title to this study. So I went back and said, did I misread the title? <laughs> that's major spin. Right. And there's, and so I, I kind of took offense at studyfinds.org and going, you're spinning an article that, that, that makes, makes it sound like, you know, the family doc isn't doing their job or doesn't know how to, and aren't very good at diagnostic diagnosis. And it came out of Mayo and I'm thinking, I guarantee you Mayo docs are not, are, are going to take offense at that too. <laughs> so it was, I, I'm a little testy with this one. It, it, uh, it, 
Is it like being uh, told that you have prostate cancer and then when you go to an oncologist, that specialist then says, oh, you actually have testicular cancer. It's still cancer. And so, yeah, and yeah, I, I think that you're right. They kind of played with the numbers a little bit and, and well, let's call it something besides what you you were told it was. Yeah, so... Well, the patient shows up in my office and, and they have a rash. And I go, well, I think the rash is caused by this, and so I'll treat it. Right. But the rash doesn't go away. And they come back and go, hmm, I was pretty sure that's what that is, but it's not. So let's make a referral to the dermatologist. Yep. Well, you send them over to the dermatologist, and the dermatologist says, well, yes, you got a rash. Dr. Nelly was right, but we're going to biopsy that rash. And then you come to find out it's some really rare form of a connective tissue disorder that pops up with a strange rash. And it's totally different from what you originally made your, your call on. Right. And so those things happen all the time, but, but we expect that because it's a referral. You know, or if the doc says, well, I think you got this strange lump and the, the surgeon says, yeah, that strange lump is a weird broken bone. Totally different diagnosis not, uh, you know, from a strange lump. But that's that's the uh, I'll get off my soapbox. Now, so. <laughs> so the difference between <laughs> referral and second opinion referral is the doctor says, go see a specialist that knows more about this specific thing than I do. So it's obvious that they're going to have possibly a little more refined tools for testing like that rash example you just gave versus let me go to someone else that's like Dr. Nally, even though there's no way like Dr. Nally, uh, go to another doctor and then they give you their opinion. Is that what you're saying that the difference is? Yeah. It's very much so. So like I've, I've had patients that have come to me and said, Dr. I have arthritis in my knee and I think I'd like to have a, a knee replacement. And so I'll send them to the orthopedic surgeon and the orthopedic surgeon says, yes, you need a knee replacement with X, Y, and Z because of you, this this particular diagnosis. But then they said, well, I didn't really know. I didn't feel comfortable with that doctor. So I would like a second opinion, which means we're going to send them back to a, another specialist of the same specialty right. to look at the same issue and see if the same diagnosis is made in the same course of treatment would be appropriate. That's a second opinion. And so- the way they spin this, they uh, that's that's a completely different entity versus a referral looking for a more specific diagnosis or looking to make sure that we're not missing something that my my specialty doesn't fully cover. If that makes sense, let's so. just put a headline out there that ticks off all the medical professionals. <laughs> <laughs> It did well, the it, doc. <laughs> it oh, it totally. I was totally <laughs> testy after this one. I was like, Did you see you it before I sent it to you? No, I didn't. Oh, I didn't you had not see seen it. So, it. so I read through it and went, there's no way. <laughs> so I actually chased down and it took me a bit because they don't put the original reference in. No. And I had to go through, I had to go through, this is, this article is a, is, is a, is a commentary on another article that actually has the article in it. And so <laughs> this is, this is third hand information, which is. It's a copy of a copy of a copy. Wow. That really, really is, degraded yeah. by the time it gets to you. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, that was an interesting one. I knew you'd get a little it was. little rise out of. So, Got the hairs on the back of my neck standing up now. So. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do do this show and real people are listening. So thank you guys for listening. And we often say, you know, let us know how things go if we answer your question. And Mike had his question answered a couple of episodes ago in episode 60. He said, hi, Jimmy and the doc. Thank you for putting my question on question on the air. When I shared about the atrocious, low fat, high carb diet, they wanted me to eat for my fatty liver. Remember that one? Oh, and yeah. He said, I wanted to update you on my appointment with the surgeon that happened last Wednesday. He insisted that I eat that diet that they recommended to shrink my liver enough to have surgery in May. But I'm sticking with the ketogenic approach that I know works for this. My blood sugar is already down to 83 milligrams per deciliter, which is awesome. I've had no hunger and I feel so much better. Thank you for such an inspiring podcast. Best wishes, Mike. So, Mike, thank you for that feedback. Definitely. Uh, 
uh, wish you well with the surgery. And yeah, keto is going to help that uh, immensely, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago. And his doc's probably going to say, look, see, you followed that high fat diet, that low fat diet. Look and how good you your did. Liver. <laughs> I'm guaranteed that'll happen. And he told I, me I, on the I, side, I am not telling him what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get to the study portion of the show before we get into your guys' questions. And um, actually, this study um, was an interesting one because it talks about uh, low-fat diets and low-carb diets. And uh, it's actually not a study. I'm sorry. This is this is a question that came in uh, through JamaicaObserver.com. Sometimes I'll see questions out there. We've done this a couple of times before, Adam, where I see questions that are asked of so-called experts out there, and it mentions low-carb diets. And so this particular one uh, was answered by this wellness coach, Donovan Grant, on this website. And so the, the question uh, there was, I'm trying to lose weight. I'm very open to dieting right now. I'm torn between whether I should take on a low fat diet or a low carb diet. I'm four foot, 11 inches tall. I weigh 150 pounds. I figure I am overweight and want to come down to an average size. Which diet's best for me? So I'm going to let you opine on what his advice was, but it wasn't really flattering towards the low carb diet. <laughs> No, it was. And in fact, I've, I've, uh, this, I actually, it was nice to see Mr. Grant do one of the most unique, um, dances on the fence that I've ever read. Um, (laughs) it was actually quite good. He, you know, I'm assuming Donovan is a he, um, uh, Mm -hmm. if if I'm wrong, I apologize, Mm -hmm. Donovan, but, um, you know, he says, well, you don't want to eat the bad fat, but you want to eat the good fat, but you don't want to eat too many carbs, but you really need some carbs for energy. And it just, just, he vacillated back and forth. It was like this, oh, totally wishy-washy. So, but, but, you know, we keep hearing that because people don't know how to respond, um, because we still think it's a caloric issue and we still think fat and saturated fat causes heart disease and, and which we've already proven that does not. Um, it's the insulin and in, in the, the inflammatory response that's driven by that insulin that actually plays the role there. And so to make it very simple, I, it was Mr. Mr. Grant did a wonderful on the fence dance. <laughs> he did, he did a wonderful balanced approach. All, yes, all, was, all pun intended. Cause that was kind of his overall thing. We well, just need to keep everything in balance, which I think it's the stupidest thing in the world. He said, I would recommend a diet that's balanced in protein. In some cases, the amount of animal protein, for example, meat and cheese could be used in half portion of the usual amount without any serious problem. And uh, you need you do not need to be on a high fat diet. Healthy fats include coconut jelly. What is coconut jelly? I've never heard of that before. I, I don't know if that's just coconut oil that was left out to sit in the sun for a while. I don't know what that is. That's kind of strange. And he said healthy fats. Pear. What the heck is a pear fat? Have you ever had pear fat? I have never had pear I fat. Pears had fat in them. Uh, this thing called ackee, A-C-K-E-E. That may be a indigenous plant to Jamaica. I don't know. Where I'm not is, sure what that is. Where is the butter and coconut oil and lard and... <laughs> I have no idea, of but course. he increased, he, he told her, he told him at the end, make sure you consume more fruits, vegetables, and vegetable juices. <laughs> I saw that. I'm thinking, and legumes and generally high fiber foods too. Yeah. yeah. Wishy-washy. That's, that's totally. we're going to leave it. Uh, Donovan, nice try, but, um, you're going to make this person more insulin resistant with that advice. Yeah. That's the challenge. 
Well, let's uh, let's uh, do another one like that where somebody wrote me and said, hey, what's your take on this take on saturated fats and blah, blah, blah. So uh, Greg had that question. Hi, Jimmy and Adam. What do you guys think about Brad Pilon's take on saturated fats and endotoxins? Thanks, Greg. So Brad Pilon's the guy. He's an intermittent fasting guy. He wrote a book called Eat, Stop, Eat uh, many years ago. And so anyway, here's what he said in an email that got Greg's attention. It says, in research, a super reproducible way to increase a person's endotoxin levels is to make them drink three-fourths of a cup of heavy cream. Drink some cream that's high in uh, saturated fat, and one hour later, all the markers of endotoxin damage skyrocket. In fact, any meal, this is the key line, that is high in saturated fat can create this type of endotoxin impact. Endotoxins come from your gut bacteria. They're associated with inflammation, arthritis, atherogenesis, insulin resistance, weight gain, and even depression. You want to do what you can do to protect yourself from endotoxins entering your body. So should you avoid saturated fats like the devil? Are all those paleo people wrong? No. You just have to make sure that you have some fruit or fruit juice. This simple step will help prevent the rise in endotoxins and the damage that they cause. If you're having bacon and eggs, have some orange slices with it. Having creme brulee, make sure to add blueberries too. See, easy peasy. Is it so easy peasy, Adam? (laughs) You might have to pull out the paddles and restart your heart after that. Get ready, guys. The doc's about to go off. Oh, my. I love the fact that he doesn't actually specify that that extra three-fourths of a cup of cream was given with two pieces of bread and a large glass of vegetable juice. Um, (laughs) When you give cream fat in the presence of of, of carbohydrates, it actually drives the endotoxin production. It actually does. And that's what the actual study he's quoting stated. It was a high fat, high carb meal wow. that caused that endo- endotoxin. And they assumed that it was just the fat because right. no one's going to eat anything other than the standard American diet, right? So if you add more fat to it, it's just going to cause endotoxin. Well, as he lays out there, inflammation, arthritis, atherogenesis, insulin resistance are all caused by insulin response to starch or carbohydrates. And that's the that's where I just, I, I don't understand how people cannot see that um, because what he's asking you to do is just add more carbs to your already to your already fat and make your meal even higher in carbs is just craziness of course of course it's going to do it and the reason it does it is because the gut bacteria in order to process the carbohydrate has to it, it shunts the way it uses the fat and actually causes an endotoxin damage it actually increases the risk of leaky gut and all those other things that occur because you're putting both of those into place at the same time however if you just give fat, the bacteria down there throws a party and says, woohoo, and it actually lowers the endotoxin level. That's what we're actually seeing from the from the recent gut studies. And it's a shame that this kind of stuff gets out there, scares uh, listeners like Greg into thinking, okay, what's this all about? So it's almost like we're having to constantly put out fires of misinformation that's out there. But I guess that's why this show exists, too. <laughs> well, you just, just call us the firemen. We're just the firemen. Spray it out with bacon fat. We'll be all right. Actually, that might cause them a bigger fire. <laughs> that would cause a bigger fire. Don't do that. <laughs> you don't want a bacon grease fire. That's not fun. No, you do so. not. That's not fun at all. It's almost as bad as slipping on the bacon grease and breaking exactly. your toes. Exactly. So special thank you this week to Susan. She said, Jimmy and Dr. Nally, I love what you guys do. Thanks for the information, encouragement, and laughter. Bacon lovers unite. So she's definitely a bacon fan like the doc is. 
And so thank you, Susan. And thank if you'd you, like to support us as well, head on over to paypal.me slash keto talk, or you can go to ketotalk.com and click on the donate button. Really any amount helps us out. And uh, we really appreciate all the support you guys give us. So we're going to pause here. We'll be right back. They're back and better than ever at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. They are the F-Bomb company. Fat is smart fuel. They have made some incredible products for the ketogenic community, and they make keto easier. They have products that include coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, house blend, MCT oil, olive oil, avocado oil, macadamia nut butter with sea salt, macadamia nut butter without salt, coconut butter, macadamia nut butter blend. They also also have salted chocolate macadamia nut butter. These are all available to you now at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. And if you head on over there now and you use the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb, they'll give you 10% off of your first order. JimmyLovesFBomb.com. Want to enjoy a sweet cookie and still stay in ketosis? Two friends did just that with Keto Cookie. Christopher and Victor went on the ketogenic diet, lost fat, and felt amazing. But they wanted something sweet and convenient for their busy lifestyle. So they created Keto Cookie and now want to share this sweet satisfaction with you. Is this really keto? Low Carbers tested Keto Cookie with their glucose monitors and were amazed by the results. How is this possible? Keto Cookie is made with non-GMO almond flour, is naturally sweetened with erythritol and monk fruit extract, and has a healthy amount of grass-fed butter, coconut oil, and MCT oil to fuel your day. With less than 2 grams of net carbs, it's the perfect on-the-go snack to keep you energized and ready to inspire the world. Enjoy your chewy childhood favorites like chocolate chip and the cinnamony snickerdoodle, gluten-free, guilt-free, and bake-free. To discover more about Keto Cookie and how two friends are inspiring people to eat smarter but sweeter, visit KetoCookie.com and be sure to use the promo code LLVLC to receive 15% off your order. And follow them on Instagram for exclusive giveaways and specials at Keto cookie if you love great olive oil do i have a deal for you as one of my listeners you're entitled to receive for one dollar listen to this for just one dollar a 39 dollar bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils and what makes this oil really special it was just fresh pressed at the new harvest so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor any olive oil you've ever tasted It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is Fresh Pressed Olive Oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh-pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oil direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. 
This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure, fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs! It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh yeah! I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time, jimmyoliveoil.com. We're back here with Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. My name is Jimmy Moore, the international best-selling author of the Ketogenic Cookbook and Keto Clarity. And coming soon, what's, what's the name of our book called, uh, Doc? Something about a cure with keto. A keto cure. cure. That's what it keto, is. Yeah. The Keto Cure, yes. So that's coming September 26th, you guys. And definitely circle your calendars. The Doc and I are, are kind of entertaining a possibility possibility of doing somewhat of a tour for that book so uh, yeah we'll let you know when we figure things out his, his schedule is so busy as is mine by the way but uh, his schedule with his patients is very busy so we're going to try to squeeze in a few here and there once that book's out but we're real excited about getting that resource out to you guys here real soon absolutely so let's get to the study portion of the show. And this was the, the study that I thought, OK, we got to talk about this. Uh, the, the title of the headline, Butter or Olive Oil, Eggs or Not, New Nutritional Review Cuts Through the Myth. So they say nutrition, nutrition can be confusing. Fad diets make headline news. We're bombarded with flip-flopping reports about what to eat. Yeah, thank you, Donovan, from earlier. He, he, he's part of that. <laughs> to separate fact from fish, fiction, a panel of physicians and researchers did a deep dive into all the nutritional science, and they published their findings in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And in the review, they examined the attention-grabbing controversies that are related to heart health, drilled down to give the most current evidence-based advice. So here's what they recommend. So they looked at, at oils. This was a big one uh, to start off with because a lot of the vegetable oils, which they identify here as olive and canola, are better than hard fats such as butter, margarine, and coconut oil. What a, on that one, Adam, I wish they had thrown in uh, like truly vegetable oils that they promote, like uh, cottonseed oil and soybean oil, which is literally in all the processed foods. But uh, obviously, oh, yeah. we don't believe that the hard fats are worse. But why do they believe it? Well, because the saturated fat content is higher. Um, if you're eating those foods with a high insulin response to other starches in your diet, which is what most what most of these studies are looking at, you're going to actually see a rise in total cholesterol in a number of cases. And so the, the and if you read down through the article, that extrapolation of, well, it's going to raise your total cholesterol is just is linked to everyone's brain of if my total cholesterol goes up, then that means I'm having a heart attack. And that's absolutely not true because total cholesterol doesn't tell you that information like we used to think it did in the 60s. We've had a few years between the 60s 
season today to realize Just a that couple. It's <laughs> not exactly it's not the total cholesterol that causes that risk. If you have your if your HDL goes up and your LDL stays the same, your total cholesterol will rise. And they'll say, well, that's good for you because your HDL went up. And, it, and if your H, HDL goes up a lot and your LDL goes down a little bit, your total cholesterol is going to rise. And that's actually good for you. But but the, the problem is that this this blanket extrapolation of just because saturated fat raises total cholesterol is um, is such an issue that they've just demonized. Uh, they keep singing the song of saturated fat hatred. I don't know why that's the case, but they and, do. And this is the legacy of Ansel Keys still. Still it really is. ugly head. It truly is. Yeah. You're, you're here still hearing the echoes of, of epidemiology from the 60s yeah. and 50s. Bad epidemiology at that, only pulling seven of the 28 studies out of the seven yeah, country no. studies. So, yeah. And then the next one was, uh, is cholesterol from eggs still a concern, which we, we had actually the dietary guidelines uh, that came out. Uh, the last ones, they said, oh, yeah, um, the cholesterol that's in eggs. Oops, uh, we didn't mean that. But but some of these guys said uh, maybe you added eggs back into your diet after that announcement. Uh, but the panel says this advice is not a one size fits all. Although saturated and trans fats and butter, bacon and meat have a larger impact on raising blood cholesterol than eggs do. Consuming high cholesterol foods may still be problematic for those 15 to 25 percent who are hyper responders. Now, one thing I do like that they said, Adam, is that there is no one size fits all. And yet they're trying to tell people it's a one size fits all. It's really interesting how they keep attempting to stick a, a you know, a round peg in a square hole or the, or vice versa with yeah. this, that they, you know, they say, well, the cholesterol is okay in the egg, but now it's really kind of not for some of you. So you just have to find out if you're one of those who it's not a problem for what, what they're, what they're admitting to the fact that that, that one size fits all advice, it, it didn't work, but they still not, they're still not willing to admit that the dietary approach with a moderate pro a moderate carbohydrate and high fat or higher fat meal causes a problem. And that's, that's what they still have yet to admit. And then this Michael, Michael Miller guy, the professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, uh, who was one of the co-authors on the review, review, said, egg whites are unlimited. In my view, they're a great source of protein. I recommend to some patients have just one yolk per two egg whites to minimize the impact on cholesterol. We're still there. We're, we're still with egg whites. Really? I know we've just gone back to the <sighs> 1970s. It's interesting. I have a patient that, you know, change, the only thing in his diet that he changed. Now he did not have horrible insulin resistance. He it was very mild, but, but he, he, all he did was put the egg yolks back in the three eggs he ate for breakfast and his small dense LDL cholesterol went down to normal. Wow. It wasn't, it wasn't tremendously high, but it actually did. And his total cholesterol went up just a hair, but his inflammation markers improved and all of that. And his testosterone went up because he was actually giving himself the products that his body needs to make testosterone. Just a simple addition of good cholesterol, which is an egg yolk. Uh, and, and he, he ate a, he ate a, it was more of a paleolithic diet. I think if you would look at it, yeah. but uh, from that a simple case approach, you can see that when a person lowers the carbs even moderately and adds the, the good fat into their system, which is the egg yolk, the saturated fat, you'll actually see improvement in overall markers for health. Hey, Dr. Miller, you send me your yolks. I'll send you my whites and we're good to go. <laughs> have you ever done that where you just made like five egg yolks and didn't have any of the whites? That's sometimes I think, fun they, I think they call that hollandaise sauce. That's awesome, man. Mix yeah, a little totally butter awesome. with it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hollandaise on everything. 
Uh, go ahead and read the rest of the article, you guys, in the show notes at ketotalk.com. They talk about green leafy and blood thinners, whether you need a gluten-free diet, on and on. But we hit the big ones uh, that I think we talk about here quite a bit here on Keto Talk. But we got a show to get to. And we got lots and lots of great questions from you guys. The first one, uh, speaking of medical doctor, is from a medical doctor, Dr. Dallas Peak. He said, hello, Jimmy and Doc Nally. I've been a listener since the first episode and enjoy listening to your podcast. I've gained so many valuable insights. Appreciate the immense support you bring us as a community of ketonians. I have a question that I don't think you've covered yet regarding intestinal microbiome and keto. I recently had my gut bacteria analyzed by Ubiome that indicated a major skew in the direction of more firmicutes compared with bacteroids at a 5.8 to 1 ratio. According to their commentary on my results. This makes me more susceptible to obesity. So my question is this, should I be concerned about this seemingly poor ratio that has happened since I started eating ketogenic? Or is this association of a preponderance of firmicutes with a higher risk of obesity only hold up in the context of the standard American diet, where we know eating too much fat in the presence of high amounts of refined carbs frequently result in obesity? Thanks for your help with this question, Dr. Dallas Peak. So Dr. Peak wants to know, should I be concerned with this higher level of firmicutes in my gut health, which supposedly puts me at a greater risk for obesity? So it's a very good question with without a really clear answer because we don't really have the evidence. But it's it's but it, it means it means Dr. Peak is thinking and he's ahead of the curve greatly. Uh, so those of you that don't know, um, what what the study shows is that when when your ratio of firmicutes to bacterio bacteriodetes, uh, if I can even say it correctly, goes I up. didn't say so it correctly. So. Yeah, I, I probably slaughtered <laughs> it for those microbiologists out there who are just I rolling over in there. Yeah. So when the firmicutes goes up, they're they noticed a pattern of increased risk for obesity in that, in that population. Um, and we, interestingly enough, have seen that um, a diet high in fat and sugar together actually raises that. Um, but Dr. Peak said, I had mine tested and I eat a ketogenic diet, but my, my ratio is still really high. Is that a, an issue? So the answer is we don't know because I don't think we've seen enough uh, gut bacterial biopsies to, to know what's the standard ketogenic bacterial ratios you should have and is that risk of obesity still still present in the ketogenic patient. Um, but what's interesting and the caveat here is that Dr. Peak is a doctor and he probably works in a hospital yep. and he probably gets exposed to something called C. diff colitis, which is a fairly contagious contact bacteria. It's also bacteria that has overgrowth in your gut too. Um, and interestingly enough, we also note that those people who've had exposure to or have a, a high risk of C. diff overgrowth actually have a higher firmicutes ratio and an increased risk for obesity as well. And so the fact that you work in a hospital or you've had that exposure also could theoretically play a role there too. So that's the challenge. Now, what's interesting is that uh, is this really the risk that's present because because of what's called oncogenic effect? Meaning, are is that higher level of that bacteria going to stimulate genes to turn on the obesity effects, or is it from some other effect? And we don't know the answer. What's actually really fascinating, though, is that the leafy greens um, that you eat act as prebiotics and dramatically lower the firmicutes level in the people when they tested them. Uh, and you can, you can find that in the, in the journal of gut microbes, volume three. Um, but that's interesting to see. So it, it's, it's a, it, like, like we've said before, it's a very rapidly changing field that we don't 
have all the answers to, but it's a really good question. And this is why when we tell people, I say, eat your, keep your fat high, keep your carbs low and have a leafy green salad at least once a day. And that balance does seem to, in for the most part, shift that, that uh, from acuities to uh, bacteroidetes balance upward <laughs> on the other side. I just slaughtered it again, I know, but... Uh, did, did you say Uncle Gene effect? The Uncle, uh, yeah, Uncle Gene effect. Oncogene, yes, Oncogene. <clears throat> so, well, if and, you got that, hopefully they got that. Well, and and this is one of those things. Once again, there's no money to be made looking at ketogenic people in in uh, you know, with their gut health. And so, yeah, until we have more. I guess gumption and, and more people, quite frankly, doing a ketogenic diet, which is happening more and more. So I'm wondering, as we have more and more patients start to do a ketogenic diet, which incidentally enough, uh, just today we had a worker come into our house, Adam, and he heard me talking about something with this show with my producer guy. And so he heard me and, and I left and had to run some errands and Christine started talking to him and he's like, was he talking about like the low carb, high fat diet? And she's like, yeah, he, he does a podcast and written books. Well, yeah, my wife started like three months ago and I joined her and she's lost 30 pounds and we're real interested. And so she ended up giving her oh, that's giving awesome. him keto clarity and the kitchen cookbook. Uh, but it, it, I think it's getting out there more and more. And so as more and more people start doing this, we're going to see. Uh, potentially in a lot of these testing, um, exactly what Dr. Peak has found uh, in his own uh, bacteria change. And maybe it's found to be a good thing. It may be. It may be. And there may, uh, there may be another factor that, that we're missing that plays a big role with that. In fact, there, I'm sure there probably is, but yeah. um, we'll see. Well, thank you, Dr. Peak, for that question. And we're up to the second featured question of the day. This one's from Debbie. Debbie says, hi, Jimmy, I love your Keto Talk podcast so much it overrides all other podcasts for me. Thank you very much. In 2014, wow. I made a commitment to get healthy at the age of 64 after a career in IT with a poor diet, lifestyle, and genetic issues that put me in a very unhealthy state. Eating a paleo primal diet, I'm now down 30 pounds from my highest weight, and all of my key blood markers are good with the exception of LDL and total cholesterol. But I'm afraid I can't eat keto because I have hemochromatosis, high iron, and I'm going to have you help me with this, uh, variegate porphyria? Porphyria. You, okay. you got it. That's, cool. Yeah, that's correct. Eating primal has significantly improved my iron overload, liver enzymes, and the time between reading to do a phlebotomy. While my iron overloaded liver seems to love low-carb, high-fat, my porphyria does not. I visited the Mayo Clinic to confirm this diagnosis. I was told to eat 400 grams of carbs daily. With the primal lifestyle, usually am around 150 to 200 grams of carbs per day. However, when I try to go lower than that, the porphyria kicks in and I get increased pain and complications in the muscle and nerve tissues. It seems porphyria needs carbs, which runs counter to my desire to be ketogenic. So is there a way for someone like me to eat keto while also eating to feed the porphyria? Thank you for your help, Debbie. I thought this was a fascinating question because she has competing disease states that she's trying to eat keto for. So her question is this. How can I eat keto when I have this porphyria requiring me to eat more carbohydrate in my diet? 
So this is probably one of the most fascinating ketogenic questions we've ever been asked. Um, it, 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 it requires that you actually understand the hormone milieu and the science of, of what the liver does uh, in a fairly rare um, genetically uh, genetic mutation. Um, there, there are a number of different types of porphyria, uh, but the variegate type um, is a broken um, – it's called the protogen oxidase enzyme, and, and there, the the encoding for that on the DNA is broken. So th- so Debbie doesn't convert um, her heme correctly, and it actually creates a byproduct which, if exposed to sunlight, can create a nasty rash and uh, like this vesicular bubble that rash and pain and discomfort and nerve issues. And so it's actually kind of a challenging issue. The problem is that this kicks in in the liver when the body thinks it's starving. So when the body shifts from glucose, from using glucose and it has to use ketones, the ketones actually stimulate um, a what's called PPAR gamma, and PPAR gamma then stimulates this cascade in the liver that's supposed to turn down gluconeogenesis. But in her case, it doesn't do that. It actually just causes a problem and creates this byproduct which can cause this nasty rash and pain. So in her case, she may not be able to truly get into ketosis because if she doesn't have enough glucose present, this will kick in. And that's one of these really rare findings that you see that could theoretically be a problem. So if she fasts or if she ramps up, like, and in this case uses exogenous ketones, there's a potential it could actually make it worse because of what, what happens. Now, the way around this is to really do about exactly what she's been doing is is a, uh, a paleolithic diet where she modulates down those carbohydrates to the level that she can handle. What what will, what she'll probably find is that, that's, is that she stays more low carb over time and, and modulates those carbs that her insulin resistance will, will improve mm-hmm. and her ability to lower that will eventually probably get better but there's no there's no science in it there's no articles that tell us that but if but if we look at the study or if we look at what the science shows us theoretically and this is where where a lot of people do really well when they kind of live between the two worlds of low carb and ketosis they're they're kind of fluxing back and forth we want her to or someone in this case to be able to have ketones present and have the benefit of ketones but not have her carb level drop so low that her body thinks it's starving and kicks in kicks that gluconeogenesis off because having the glucose present all the time keeps that enzyme from being high enough that causes her rash to kick up. Really rare and really yeah. fascinating, um, but a challenge for Debbie. But I, 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 I'm curious to hear how she does and how low she gets over time with those carbs without causing this to kick in. So I would assume, based on what you were just saying with the protein, that if she ate more protein, there wouldn't be this glucose effect. So she actually has to eat uh, to perf- to form the glucose in the form of carbohydrate, not extra protein, right? Well, she actually could. And this is where, in her case, a high protein diet would probably be beneficial. It'll, it'll help her with her hemochromatosis in some, some parts, but it will also provide enough of the gluconeogenesis factor to present that she won't have the porphyria kick in. And so this is one of those exceptions where instead of saying, push the fat as high as you can and moderate the protein, we'd give her more fudge room with more protein and let her, and let her um, eat as much fat as she wants and then modulate those carbs down to where she's comfortable without having an exacerbation. That would be in, an in interesting thing, Debbie, bumping up the, the protein and seeing if you could get your carbs even below that 150 threshold, which she currently eats, it'd be fascinating to see if if that gives her the benefits. And like you said, healing the insulin resistance over time. This is really a, a weird question. It was fascinating to me. Oh, it's fascinating. I, I knew it would make your brain go 
well, and the, the bodybuilders do this all the time. So yeah. if she adds exercise into her regimen, even if it's just mild to moderate exercise into her regimen, um, that exercise will give her the benefits of the, of having that of, of losing the fat, but but she'll be able to maintain the higher protein levels and that and and hopefully maintain uh, that liver from stimulating this this aberrant protein from kicking in yeah. and having that problem rise. So it's this is one of those really unique. Um, components that you don't see very often, but but it's there, and it's uh, it's uh, I, I'm curious to hear how she does. Well, Debbie, thanks for that question, and yes, let us know how you are doing. We are up to the third featured question of the day from Matthew. Hi, Jimmy and Doc Muscles. Do people in general have less of an insulin release if the carbs are spread out all over the course of the day? Rather than eating them all at once, when I used to eat a normal carb diet, I hate that phrase, normal carb diet, uh, the theory was to eat smaller portions as a means of keeping insulin levels low. Would something like this help for someone who is very insulin resistant? I'm fairly insulin sensitive, so I use keto to stay healthy. I've been eating keto for about four months, enjoy doing N equals one experiments to see how my body reacts to any changes I make. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for all the info you guys bring to us. I always look forward to the new episodes. I wish you guys would create a forum for your large ketonian community to talk to each other and find out what topics are hot in the world of keto. Your faithful listener, Matthew. So Matthew's question is this. If you spread the carbs out throughout the day, does that create a lower insulin response and, and you know we've talked about this before where conventional wisdom says eat you know eight small meals a day and 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 the purpose of it is to control blood sugar and insulin levels and that's never made sense to me because really any food that you would eat would have some kind of an insulin level uh, insulin release um is he on to something that maybe this is beneficial for someone or like I would say, maybe go periods of fasting, which would create a much lower insulin release. And it happens naturally when you eat ketogenic. Well, what Matthew's talking about is exactly what I started doing 11 years ago. We just basically cut the carbs back and had all the fat and protein we wanted and, and thought that would work. And for many people, it did work, but it doesn't work for everybody. And and, and so what, what, what we found is that if we cut the carbs down to like, and I do this all the time with patients who are feeling really healthy, but we just want to help lower their cholesterol and that's all yeah. we want to do. Um, we just cut their carbs to like 20 to 30 per meal. And then and their cholesterol actually lowers. We, they don't see the, the fat loss component because you're not dropping insulin lowest to see more fat come off, but we're actually seeing inflammation more come down and things like that. So it really does depend on your insulin sensitivity. Yes. Uh, number one. Um, but the, the, this, this approach was what I originally made 10 or 11 years ago when we first started using it. It works for some people, but doesn't, doesn't work for everybody, especially those who are much more insulin resistant. Um, but what we know is that it's it's a four to six hour window. So if you eat a piece of bread, you're going to have the effect of that insulin um, play a role on fat retention and inflammation for six, sometimes eight hours, even 12 hours in some cases. So I tell people if, if you're if you're spreading the carbs out, you're going to see less of an insulin response, but you've got to spread those carbs out in a window of, of six to eight hours, roughly. <laughs> and which, which ends up being you eat more fat and you eat less carbs and you're actually not hungry and you naturally fast, which is to answer your second question that I think that actually is what usually happens with most people and the, the carb cravings go away. Yeah, it was kind of weird spread spread the carbs out throughout the course of the day, but I like spreading them out within that very defined window, six to eight hours, and then let the body naturally fast. Uh, it's it's definitely a good way to do it. 
So, Matthew, you also brought up uh, that we should create a forum for the large ketonian, ketonian community so you guys can talk to each other. Well, guess what, guys? Today, today we are debuting the all-new Keto Talk Facebook discussion page. Yes, I've been working on this behind the scenes. I didn't even tell the doc about this, so he's learning about it, too. Uh, oh, you are a glutton for punishment, aren't you? I am, Holy man. Smokes. Dude, you got to be out there. You got to meet the people where they are and give them what they want. So people have been asking me for this, you know, pretty much weekly. I've been getting emails. Where's your Facebook page? We want to, like, talk to each other. We want to, like, talk about the show and what you guys talked about and give our opinion. I'm like, great. That sounds oh, awesome. Oh, great. That sounds fun. Yeah. So it's, here's the website you guys ketotalkfb.com that's ketotalkfb facebook.com so go check it out we'll definitely have a link to it at ketotalk.com in case you can't remember ketotalkfb.com so there it is so go on there today go go on there say hello give us your thoughts about the show tell the the doc how handsome he is and how smart i am i'm just kidding oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) Oh, that's yeah. I, I sh- you should actually put your favorite fat bomb recipe there it is. on there. That favorite is Keto fat Talk bomb. Fat Bomb Day. Or you'll, you go. you'll make uh, you'll make the Doc's Day if you put some meme about bacon because he always loves memes about oh, bacon. Oh, there you go, bacon memes. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna get yes. a million bacon memes on Keto oh. Talk Facebook page. <laughs> You're gonna get inundated. Here it goes. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Here we go. I'll be looking for it, you guys. So thank you very much. And thank you, Matthew, for that suggestion. But it was already well in the works by the time you sent your email. And now it's live, ketotalkfb.com. But we are up to the Keto Talk mailbox portion of the show. This is from Serena. Hi, Jimmy and Doc Nally. Thank you for such an informative and funny podcast. It's such a great companion for me on my long drives. I have a question on doing keto while at high altitude. I live close to sea level and I'll be going on a business trip to a place that's 17,000 feet above sea level for a total of two and a half weeks soon. The client has advised us that we need to be eating a high carb diet of 75% carbohydrates in order to use the oxygen efficiently at that elevation. My understanding is that when we are in ketosis, we don't need to be as concerned with this oxygen absorption as we uh, don't need it for the fermentation process to produce energy from glucose. Is this correct? If not, should I be, should I be eating high carb in preparation for this? Also, do you have any advice on how to optimize energy levels in this situation? Much regards, Serena. So Serena has an interesting question. I know you were at Low Carb Vale last year, as was I, and I was at Low Carb Breckenridge, uh, where we 10,000-ish feet high. Uh, she wants to know, do I need to eat a high-carb diet prior to visiting a very high elevation for a few weeks to utilize oxygen better? Oh, I don't know where this client got their, their <laughs> medical instruction carbs. From. Oh my, the whole group's going to be asleep for two and a half weeks. My blood sugar spike just reading that. (laughs) Oh, that's just painful. Uh, um, No, Serena, I would not carb load. Uh, That's that's the worst advice I've heard. You know, the issue when you go to, when you change altitude greater than 7,000 feet in a a, a period of time before you acclimate is that you're going to, you run the risk of um, acute mountain sickness and in really severe cases, um, brain edema because of of, uh, pulmonary edema that can arise uh, with that significant shift if you're not used to it. Those are the two things we're really worried about. Um, but most people begin to acclimate by the fourth or fifth day just by being at that altitude. Um, I'll tell you one of the, and Jimmy and I both commented on it. And I, you know, when we went, when I was at Vail with my son, 
and we went snowboarding. Um, and, and I had never snowboarded before because we wanted to learn. <laughs> Obviously, and I don't, I don't <laughs> you, recommend to do it at Vail because there's no bunny hill. Um, it was two broken ribs later. Uh, it was it was it, it we was changed hilarious. Altitude. Oh, it was hilarious. I live in Arizona at 1500 feet of, above sea level. Um, Vail is at 7500 feet above sea level. And the top of the mountain where we started on the snowboards is at 11.5, if I understand correctly. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel it at all. I felt fabulous. My son felt fabulous. Yeah. We actually, and he didn't, he was only just doing low carb. He wasn't doing a true ketogenesis, but we both had tremendous energy. We both felt fabulous. I broke two ribs in the process and still felt like going back up on the mountain. I felt so good. So I really, and, and, and then I do a lot of hiking with scouts and things like that and horseback riding. We change altitude all the time and I have never felt better than when I'm in ketosis and we change altitude. And it's because your body doesn't have to, it uses oxygen different, differently and your body's able to access the fuel sources much more effectively at that lower oxygen content, the higher you are in altitude. So I, I would not recommend it. The second thing that's most common is that you get dehydrated because whether you realize it or not, you blow off a significant amount of body water through the more active respiration at higher altitude. So mountain sickness is often related to significant dehydration as the first step that's kicking in there. The amazing thing about a ketogenic diet is you're producing large amounts of water and you it helps you, number one, stay hydrated better. But as long as you're drinking adequate water and you're eating all the fat you want, you, you'll, you'll, you should usually do very well unless there's some other issue going on. But that's really what I, what I would suggest. And I don't know where, where fermentation and carbs ever <laughs> occurred. That's, that's not how we, we absorb it, but that's a whole other discussion. Well, she was reading something somewhere. So, Serena, I hope that helps you out and uh, have a great trip that two and a half weeks, uh, 17,000 feet. Where, where would that be? Where, where, where is the elevation that high? Not anywhere in Colorado. I think 12,000 is the highest in Colorado. I don't know, but it sounds like they're having a pretty amazing business meeting in the Himalayas or someplace. Yes, yeah, somewhere. Wow. That's, that's amazing. It, I'm curious to hear how it goes, but that's amazing. Serena, let us know how being a superstar keto helps you in that case, unless you just decide to, to carb up just for, for kicks. <laughs> You're going to feel like a hangover, though. It'll feel bad. It's, it's, you don't want to do I, I Without do the that. alcohol. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, we're up to the iTunes review portion of the show, and we've got uh, three really good ones here today. The first one from Wendy Woo Dog. She says, thanks for all the great content. I couldn't do it without you. So thank you for being there, Wendy. Uh, the next one, Canoe4212. This is my first time listening to this podcast. I really enjoy the specificity of the content. I've been on a ketogenic diet for three weeks, and I feel great. I'm glad to know that this podcast can be a resource and support along my journey. I'll also be ordering uh, the good food pizzas that your sponsor. One thing I'd like to point out is to be careful about overgeneralizations related to generations. We talked about that uh, recently. I'm 27 yeah, and fit in the millennial category. I'm not a typical millennial in many aspects of life. It did raise eyebrows with the comments on your show that most millennials don't give a crap about eating habits. Unfortunately, most probably don't. Uh, but I'm glad to know that you do, Canoe, so thank you. Uh, I'm finding along my journey... Uh, that many millennials are extremely interested in proactively managing their health by lifestyle changes related to food intake and exercise. Close personal friends of mine are millennials fall into the same camp as me. We understand the health and wellness benefits of cutting out additives, preservatives, grains, added sugars, etc. to help ourselves from the inside out for now and in the long run. I appreciate your podcast and I'm so excited to continue learning. Yes, never stop learning. Never stop learning. 
And then the last one is from Aaron Work 865. I love to mini binge listen while I do my weekly keto food prep. Oh, that's a perfect time to listen to this podcast is while you're prepping oh, yeah. your keto food. The combo of listening to keto knowledge while preparing keto food sets my mindset right for another week of the healthy keto lifestyle amidst a garbage world. Thanks, guys. So thank you guys for all those wonderful reviews. And if you'd like to leave us a review, head on over to iTunes, type in Keto Talk, type in Jimmy Moore, Adam Nally, you will find the show and leave us your review. Well, Adam, that's another show in the books, episode 62 in the can. And as that was always, a good one. that was a fun one, man. Sorry, we went a little bit long on some of that, but sometimes, you know, you got you got to kind of dig deep and, and get the information out there. And that's what we try to do each and every week here on Keto Talk. Visit our website, it's ketotalk.com and the all new Facebook page. I want to see how many Ketonians head over to our Facebook page. So let, let's make that a contest. What What's the over under that you think the number of people that will start following that page? 500? I have no idea. I, I bet you we had a thousand. In a thousand? First. You think? All right, guys, you got to help us do that because the, the, the doc has very lofty goals. I'm saying 500, but he's saying a thousand. So if it's somewhere in between, we both win. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Yes. <laughs> KetoTalkFB.com is that website. So go check it out. And as always, if you like what you hear on this show, definitely head on over to PayPal.me slash KetoTalk to make a donation or click on the donate button at KetoTalk.com. So until next Thursday, Doc, we'll see you then. See you then. You've been listening to Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. Visit our website, ketotalk.com, for full show notes for this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, then head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Keto Talk. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.